Hey guys, happy new year and welcome to today's podcast episode. I'm really excited about today's guest, Corwin Smith, coming from Arizona. And he is a value growth coach, and which is really interesting. We'll find out more about what that is. And today's talk is going to be all about drivers of business value, business ownership, finding great employees. And I'm really happy to welcome Corwin to the show. Welcome. Hey, great to be on the show. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I love to start out just by laying the groundwork, your early experiences, how they influenced mm -hmm. you to do what you do today. Yeah. Uh, so my my first job in college, actually, I worked for a medical imaging facility. Uh, we specifically did MRIs and uh, I did marketing. So I called on physicians all day, every day, uh, other than going to college. And uh, I, I remember vividly, uh, it was probably, I don't know, nine months or a year in sitting at lunch with uh, referral coordinators and uh, two physicians. And we were talking about the challenges they had in their practice and how much money they were bleeding because um, their processes and everything else was a total mess. And so it was kind of something that stuck with me. And I'm like, you know, these are some of the most educated professionals in the world, arguably. I have a friend that's an orthopedic surgeon, and I know about his journey. We've been friends since high school to get to where he's gotten. And I mean, he had to keep winning progressively in high school, in college, in, in medical medical school to get into, you know, it's, it's like, it's almost like getting into the major leagues of baseball or similar. And so, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm just really shocked at such um, intelligent, and well-studied people and the challenges they are having running their business. Fast forward, uh, I found myself um, actually starting a, a specialty construction company during college because I was so burned out and unfulfilled uh, being a marketer and just cold calling on doctors. Like uh, I had financial rewards and got a lot of recognition for success, but it wasn't really fulfilling. So I ended up starting a company in construction out of all things. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I grew the company really fast and I faced some of the same challenges that those physicians were facing, which was, um, the harder I worked, the more people I threw at the problems, they didn't go away. If anything, they got worse. Um, which is when I got introduced to like a methodology or a practice, if you will, for growing and scaling companies that, you know, is fundamental and it's rather universal. Um, so I implemented it in my specialty construction company, created significant autonomy or freedom for myself. And again, I found myself at that pivot point of making great money, deeply unfulfilled. And uh, so I exited that company in 2016. And I've been working with business owners and entrepreneurs since to overcome the same challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you're a natural born entrepreneur. And that's um, <laughs> what it sounds like. Yeah, it's quite interesting. And I love this, uh, you know, I can really resonate with, you know, what you what you saw. So, um, you know, we'll dive into these five themes for the conversation. And the first is yeah. scaling businesses across diverse industries. And what common challenges do businesses face when trying to scale? And how do you tailor your approach to these unique demands? What's interesting and like what I uncovered myself was scaling my company wasn't a matter of like putting in a new software platform or getting better equipment or anything else. When I looked at all the challenges I was having in my business, it came down to people. That's it. And the fact is like, we're in human business. Whatever we sell might be different. We might require different software technologies 
or licensing or whatever it is to do what we do and get what we get paid to do. But the fundamentals are all, all the same and they're all centered around human beings and figuring out how do we get this people in our team aligned around the same things and create accountability, but also a culture that's really enjoyable to be around. So what I discovered was um, it didn't matter what industry, you know, today I work with diverse industries. The fundamentals are all the same, but they're applied specifically for the situation um, or the business I'm working with. Um, And so What's fascinating is it doesn't matter if it's someone in medicine or someone in cannabis or construction or fill in the blank. I'm doing the same fundamental moves with them, which is number one, helping really put in a system to find, hire and build a team of A players that are highly accountable. We can only go as far as our people, period. Number one. Number two is help them identify their differentiating strategy in the marketplace um, so they can earn. not only top 1% incomes, but the other piece of this too is top 1% accomplishments in the marketplace. So instead of just being another physician or another construction company that's constantly competing on price or something else, having a true differentiating value proposition. And then the third piece we really hyper-focus on is systems and processes. So once we've got great people, we have to put in processes and systems to set them up to win. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And uh, we'll talk about these um, hiring because myself and a lot of my colleagues and friends, you know, we always talk about, you know, it's hard to hire good people because either you hire crappy ones or the really good ones and they leave. So tackling the hiring challenge uh, in light of your insight, what innovative strategies or methodologies do you recommend for retaining top talent? Yeah, so there's a few breakdowns I noticed with companies in hiring. And in quarter four, we actually started offering recruiting to our clients because they, as much as we trained them on the process, some of them just couldn't seem to implement it. So like challenge number one is not enough quality applicants in the funnel to begin with. (laughs) So what happens is, is you're already overwhelmed as a physician and a business manager. And you're like, I don't have time to sift through 150 resumes You look at a couple resumes and you're like, geez, I interviewed three or four people and okay, Tom or Sherry is the best of the four. I'm just going to hire them. And then what happens is, is we get into a situation where we made a hiring decision and it's like, this person sucks. They had an incredible resume. Like they had, they had an amazing resume. And then we get them on board and we're like, this is a nightmare, but I've spent so much time hiring and I don't have time to rehire that I'm going to do whatever I can. And I'm going to stand on my head to try to get them to work. So the first breakdown I notice is number one is not nearly enough qualified applicants coming into the hiring process is number one. The second component is us being able to screen effectively and identify, is this person actually going to be able to perform on our team or not? And the screening is like having like really highly structured interviews, probably similar to medical school interviews, by the way. I don't know specifically how medical school interviews go other than third party. I've never been in (laughs) one but highly structured interviews to understand about an individual's background and experience and success in the past. If people have not been successful in the past in a role we're hiring them for, the chances of them being successful here is actually very low. Sometimes success translates because there's adjacent skills that can translate to success through screening effectively. The next piece is once we've screened is actually making the onboarding like a day of celebration. Uh What I notice is, 
is companies will either hire recruiters and spend 20% oftentimes for recruiters. We don't charge near that, but 20% for a recruiter or they'll spend their own time or team's time and money hiring someone. And then they just kind of throw them out to the wolves. Like their first day is spent like filling out paperwork from hell. Um, And then like this person's not lit up to work at their company and they can't figure out why it's like a first date. Imagine going on a first date where you're on your phone the whole time and like disconnected and checked out. Like it's not going to go well. (laughs) Same thing applies here. So, so like those are the first three breakdowns. And then the next breakdown is as, as managers, we don't spend nearly enough time actually coaching our team to success. Mm-hmm. We end up like either doing zero feedback and zero coaching, or we turn into a micromanager and either end of the spectrum is not going to have people perform at their best. Uh-huh. So we have a systematic process. That's not like, it's not, you know, uh, leading edge or breakthrough or anything like that. It's just really systematic and structured that anyone can follow to be able to find hire or select top talent and then onboard them and coach them effectively. So you get max performance. Many times when people leave a role, compensation may be a factor if you're maybe 40% under the market, like people are going to leave. But if it's like 10% increase people are leaving for, they actually aren't necessarily quitting the organization. They're quitting their boss. Well, everything you uh, described reminds me of residency. It's it's kind of like, you know, trial by fire, but... uh, Oh, it's a grinder. And I think residency is a little bit different in that like, Again, third party, I've never been in residency, but what I've heard, it is trial by fire. And it's kind of like the NFL combine or something. It's like, well, only a certain number are going to pop out. That is not a good model to onboard employees. That's a horrible model to onboard employees. That doesn't work. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. (laughs) I still have PTSD from those days, though. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You got paid like, what, $3 an hour or something. And, you know, it's just miserable. Take all the worst cases. Yeah. Um, So kind of moving on is this um, idea of, um, you know, once you have a successful business, you know, you tackle Mm -hmm. the hiring challenge, you scale it, preparing business for sale. How do you do that? Yeah. So what I notice is like, business owners tend to be in one of two situations when they reach out and they're looking for help to like really prepare their business for exit. By the way, like I say, if you want to get max value for your business, you need a minimum of three years. And I'm going to dial into the specifics as why. But many times when business owners reach out to us, it's because they're actually trying to quit or leave a situation rather than, yeah, hey, you know what? My business is exactly where I need it to be financially so I can exit and fulfill on my financial ambitions. Rarely is that where they are. Mostly they're like, I I hate my life. I hate my business. I'm going to sell this thing and I'm going to do an entirely different business or I'm going to go work for someone else or something else, which has its own challenges over there. So that's number one. Number two is it takes at least three years to prepare business for sale. And it's because companies largely trade for net profit or, or free cash flow. You'll run into exceptions where you get PE firms or private equity firms that may say, hey, we're going to buy you for a a multiple of sales or something like that. But those situations are so uncommon and so few and far between that we focus on what a company's fundamentally trade for, which is free cash flow or profit, number one. And our focus is when we work with a company is pretty consistently over three to five years, we can increase their valuation five to eight hundred percent by a series of strategies we implement. And so if a company comes in and it's worth, you know, moderate case here, it's worth a million dollars, five to $8 million valuation after, you know, 36 to 48 months is not uncommon. 
And it's because of the actions and the moves we put in to drive bottom line profitability, which includes obviously growing sales, number one, you've got to grow sales, but you've also got to make sure that you're efficiently turning that sales into profit. Sales and profit are not the same thing. Yeah. I'm sure as you're familiar. Yeah. yeah. So that's number one. Number two is, is if we pull you out as the, as the practice owner, is the company going to stay there or is it just going to collapse? That's the number, number two driver business valuation, which is the business can run without the owner in place. Otherwise, you don't really have a business, you have a job. And, and then number three, like the third biggest driver is moving the business into a niche that's um, uncommon and highly valuable. Riches are in niches fundamentally. And the more niched you are, the, the higher likelihood you're going to have a strategic acquirer that wants to come and either use you as a platform company or they want to roll you up because of high margins. Uh -huh. So the third piece is getting into a niche, not being a generalist. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't matter if, if, if you're a you know, family physician, you can still get into a niche in a, you know, you could say non-niched um, uh, medical practice. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the, on the same line, some a lot of business owners, they get unsolicited offers and how do they navigate whether to entertain or just move on? Gosh, uh, every single one of my clients gets unsolicited offers every week. And I tell them move number one is to ignore them. In most cases, here's why. If you think about it for a second, um, I've got a client that has gone, th they're, they're larger, they're a, a, about a $40 million manufacturing company, and they've gone through due diligence um, twice now with potential acquirers. In, in their own company, they have at least one, if not two individuals dedicated to doing due diligence for the possible acquiring firm, spending significant time in the process. Here's the thing to know is if a company is come, coming and making an offer to you, mm. you do not have the upper hand, mm. mm -hmm. right? You do not have the upper hand because you have one acquirer. What we would rather do instead is we'd rather build the company to a point that it's highly attractive to acquirers, which, you know, how much free cash flow or, or net profit it has as a driver of this, and then work with investment bankers to produce an auction for your company. So what you have is you have multiple acquirers that are competing to buy your business. 99% oh. of the time, maybe higher, when someone's knocking on your door, they have people that are full-time employed to make deals. And they are sharps, plain and simple. Mm -hmm. You don't have a chance. Even though you're really intelligent, you're smart and everything else, you're not going to win in that situation because many times what happens is they knock on their door, they, your door, they give you an offer, which is, you know, we'll just call it $10 million just using round numbers. Hey, we're going to pay you $10 million for your business. They take you through a due diligence period that may extend six to 12 months. You get to the end of the thing. And by this point, most business owners like have already set sail for the Bahamas and they're retired or whatever the thing is. And you get to the end of it like nine months and you've already invested all this time. There's money because you got to have attorneys involved and probably accounting professionals too. And they're like, yeah, 10 million. We'll actually give you six. Hmm. It's a very common practice. And guess yeah. what happened? They just bought your company on discount. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Because you had no other options. So it's it's a psychological play here where it's like, we're going to wear you down, wear you down, wear you down, and then we're going to pay you less than your company's actually worth hmm. versus coming at it from the other direction, which is you really intentionally prepare the company for sale, have it listed with an investment banker or a broker that's specialized, and then they produce or create an auction for your business. So you have multiple multiple acquirers competing for your business. 
yeah entirely changes the situation yeah that's yeah really that's 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 gold i think that's worth you know the whole entire interview kind of ending the conversation balancing professional growth and family life and you know how do you they balance those two and you know share some strategies and examples from your own 100 my team and i we developed a tool we called the one page life plan so we help business owners develop the one page business plan and we actually developed the one page life plan because i think work-life balance is an entire myth <laughs> it really is like i think it's a lie mm -hmm. and so what we've done is we've really broken down what it means to be human across across four specific quadrants so the first one is like your body like your meat vehicle the next one is being which is your connection to spirituality or god or whatever that is for you it doesn't matter confidence whatever the third one is balance, which is all about relationships that matter, whether you're married or not married, uh, partner, kids, friends, things like that. And the fourth quadrant is business. What most business owners do is they keep pouring into their business, hoping that their business is going to get better when they're probably 150 pounds overweight. Mm -hmm. And they probably need to deal with their body actually to improve their business. Because if you're 150 pounds overweight, you're not going to have the energy to perform well at work. Or they pour into their business, ignoring their relationship with their spouse and their kids, not realizing that if their relationship to their spouse is strained to their kids, it's going to impact their psychology when they actually show up to work and try to be effective. So part of our program and part of the work we do with business owners is helping them figure out like, are you ever going to find work-life balance? Probably not. It's all about trade-offs as an entrepreneur. But figuring out how do I have harmony amongst body, being, balance, and business while I go after achieving my business and financial goals. And so we're more about seeking harmony rather than balance. Mm, I love that. How can people find out more about you? You have a lot of really great experience and ideas. Yeah. So uh, we have a website. It's culture2cash.com. My name's Corwin Smith. Uh, we've got articles on there in you know, our whole intention of what we do is working with business owners to increase what we call human life value, which is improving the quality of their life and their team's lives, which we know ultimately is the number one driver of enterprise value or business value at the end of the day. And for all the audience out there, all of Corwin's links will be in the show notes and be sure to give him a follow on socials and check out his work. And with that, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you.